getting to the Word of God this morning, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. And as you do that, Matthew chapter 2, I would mention that we have now come to our fourth and final message from our Advent series. Now, the Oxford Languages defines Advent, and this is kind of a quote that came right out of there, the first season of the Christian church leading up to Christmas and including the four preceding Sundays. That's an end quote, I'm sure you know that already. And so these past weeks, we have been examining perspectives on the Christmas story from those who were involved in it as a way of increasing our spiritual preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus, which we will do next week, or you will do, I will do it, we will all do it in various Christian churches, evangelical churches around the world. Our last perspective this morning relates to, and we have actually sung all, thank you Mike for singing those six verses. I don't need to preach long at all because it was all about what we're going to be talking about this morning. But it relates to the worship of Jesus as the King of Kings. And it comes to us from the first 12 verses of uh, Matthew's Gospel and chapter 2. And I just want to mention to you that as we read through this passage, I'll read it, um, I'm going to do it from the New American Standard, but it's not that much different from your ESV, so I think you'll be able to follow along very effectively. But we're going to notice in here that the word worship is in here three times. And uh, that has been an intense study of mine virtually my entire uh, Christian life. It's been a fascinating thing for me to study and, and even was the object of, well, I won't go into that. But the word means to bow down. Literally, bow down. And when you think about that, when you are bowed down uh, in front of one of authority, your eyes are looking down, you're on your knees, and basically you're so surrendered that whoever you bow down to, uh, you are willing to give up your life to, for that person. It comes from the Greek word proskuneo, and it's a compound word, pros, which means toward, and kineo, which means to give affection or to give reverence. So as I read through the passage this morning, please just kind of take a look at those. I even highlighted them in my Bible because that's really what this message is about. It's about the worship of Jesus as the King of Kings. Beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, 
For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel or this gospel is to establish the legitimacy of the Lord Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah that was so often prophesied in the Old Testament, the only one who is, who is totally, fully worthy of our exclusive worship. And our story begins, as we read, with a group of people known as the Magi. Now, there is some myth surrounding the Magi that has become long-standing tradition and fairly well accepted in the evangelical church. Most people take it for granted that there were three of them. In actuality, if you notice, the Bible doesn't really reveal their actual number, does it? We probably got the number three from the fact that they gave three different kinds of gifts to Jesus as their act of worship. Also, during the Middle Ages, a story developed that their names were Gaspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. But again, the Bible doesn't give us their names, does it? Truthfully, we really don't know too much about these people. The name Magi first appeared way back in the 7th century BC, probably in Babylon, the Far East, from Israel, and was associated with a very learned um, kind of person or people, group of people who studied all kinds of things in their world. They studied astronomy, they studied uh, astrology, they studied science, mathematics, and agriculture, and history, and religion. And because of their great knowledge and teaching, they held some kind of office of royalty in the Far East, and therefore exercised some powerful political and judicial influence wherever they lived. Now, the action of our passage suggests several things. First, the Magi assumed when they got to Jerusalem, everyone would know about such a momentous birth as the king of the Jews, right? I mean, after all, this was Judea. They were probably confused when they discovered after asking where he was, no one knew what they were talking about. Second, the Magi knew that this king had been born near Jerusalem because they saw his star and they followed it there to find him. And there has been a lot of speculation about that star. Some think it was a passing comet. Others uh, think it was the conjunction of the planets Jupiter and Saturn forming some kind of a stellar phenomenon that shined very brightly. Some even think that it was some kind of a low-flying meteor. 
Again, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what it was, but we know, don't we? The definition of the word astera in the original means that it was a kind of non-terrestrial luminous phenomenon. Where do those come from? They come from our God. The glory of God in the form of a beautiful and very bright light that was only made visible to those whom God wanted to see it. You know, there's another example of that in the New Testament. It was when the apostles to Damascus to wreak havoc among the Christians there, and suddenly a bright light flashed around him. So it's not the first time that we see that happening in the scriptures. So they gathered their gifts back to the Magi, and they made the trip to Jerusalem, following the star, to pay homage to the newborn king, probably within a month or so of his birth. That's the Magi. We don't really know all that much about them, but they're now in Jerusalem, and they're looking for the newborn king of the Jews, and the focus of our story is going to change now. How does it change? Well, it changes in verse 3 to a man. His name is Herod. And now there is a problem. Even though the Magi are looking for the newborn king of the Jews, there already is a king of the Jews sitting in power in Jerusalem. His name is Herod the Great. And he's very unhappy with the news that he's in competition with another king that has just been born. This is especially upsetting to Herod. Why? Because he had been fighting for a long time for uh, acceptance among the, the, the Jewish people as their king. In 40 BC, he was appointed to this position, not by the people or anybody else in or around Jerusalem or Judea for that matter, but by the Roman Senate a long way from Jerusalem. He'd been fighting for so long to, to get the to get the the, the, the the people to come along with him and that he could overcome that stigma of being appointed by a Roman Senate. And he desperately wanted to retain his crown against the Jewish zealots who knew that he did not have a right to be their king. He also wasn't purely Jewish. He was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, and not from the line of David. So everyone knew that he wasn't supposed to be on the throne, but Palestine was under Roman occupation. And at the time, Mark Antony had put him in charge as the king, something Herod wanted so badly, and he was determined to hang on to his crown. Herod was a very, uh, sometimes I, I, when I was putting this together, I was thinking, I can't find the right word, I'll just say effective. He was a very effective ruler for his time. He was a complicated man. He was brilliant. He, he built theaters, amphitheaters, racetracks, and even entire cities. There are large aqueducts that are still standing there today as a testimony to his architectural brilliance. But he was also a very jealous, very suspicious and cunning and cruel manipulator of people and circumstances. He would do anything to anybody, anytime, to keep his position. He even married an aristocratic Jewish woman to gain acceptance by the people. Later, though, he murdered her. And then he murdered her brother, murdered her mother, and three of his own sons because he thought they were after his crown. 
Later, five days before he died at the age of 70, he realized that no one was going to mourn his loss. So he had his military officials to round up all the major citizens of Jerusalem, the distinguished citizens, and he ordered them all to be executed at the moment he died to make sure that there was crying in Jerusalem. This is Herod the Great. So in verse 3 here where it says, Herod, was, uh, Herod the king was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, oh yeah, they were going to catch it. Somehow it was going to come back on them. You better believe it was a big deal. And in verses 4 to 7, we learn here that he immediately takes up an investigation into the matter of the new king being born under his rule. In verse 4, he wants to know where the Christ child was born. He asks his priests and scribes in verses 5 and 6, and they end up quoting the Old Testament prophet of Micah in chapter 5, who said this king would be born in Bethlehem. That was only about five miles away from where they were. And then in verse 7, Herod wanted to know from the Magi when the, the star appeared so that he would know just about how old this new young challenger was to his throne. And then in, in verse 8, Herod makes his move. He sent the Magi to Bethlehem and he said, go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Really? Herod's intention, of course, was to let the Magi do all the footwork of actually finding the Christ child, and then he would come in behind him with his soldiers, and he would do the dirty work of eliminating the problem. The story continues, though, in verses 9 and 10, as the Magi continued their trip at Herod's request. The star took them right to the house in Bethlehem where the baby Jesus was staying. And there they rejoiced with a great, exceedingly great joy as they realized that their long trip was over and their search was successful. They had found the king. Verse 11 says they went into the house and saw the child and fell down and they worshipped him. They were opening, they did open their rare Eastern gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh as elements of their homage to the king of the Jews. Now, why were these things, we don't really hear those words a lot. Gold, we do, of course, is a very precious metal. It was, it was not found in Palestine at all, so it all had to be imported. As a result, it was very valuable. Frankincense was a very costly, yellowish-colored uh, tree resin that came from Arabia, and it was usually burned as incense. Myrrh was a very expensive perfume. It was used for a variety of purposes. It wasn't as valuable as frankincense, but it was still very rare and very expensive. Now, from this point on, we know from verses 12 through 18 that God blocked Herod's attempt to murder the Christ child by appearing to the Magi in a dream. He warned them, don't go back to Herod. Um, I want you to go home by a different route. And so they did. Then God sent an angel and instructed Joseph, the father of Jesus, to take him to Egypt and get him out of harm's way for a while. Later, when the king found out that he'd been tricked, he committed one of the most atrocious acts of his career 
by sending his troops into Bethlehem to kill all the male children under three years old. As far as he was concerned, he had quickly solved the problem of this new challenger to his throne. The matter was finished. The challenger was dead. Within a year, however, King Herod himself died of an unknown disease. So that's the story of the Magi's visit to the newborn Christ child. The question now is, why, why is this important? I mean, what does it mean to us? Well, this story is about the identity of the true, legitimate, eternal king who is fully worthy of our worship. Is it the one appointed by man, Herod? Or is it the one given by God, Jesus Christ? One is supposed to be on the throne by the decree of God. The other is not. Yet the one who isn't supposed to be there is. And the one who is supposed to be there isn't. I get that right? Herod, the man whose dream of power and glory had turned into a constant struggle to keep his throne, worked to his dying breath to maintain control over his status and his surroundings and all the people. And in actuality, he lost it anyway when he died. His legacy is sad and depressing. It's, his history is that of violence and infamy. His posterity is poor. His reputation is wretched. He's in the history books as a violent, selfish ruler who used all of his resources to build empty opulence and that he couldn't take with him when he died. Are you seeing where this is going? Despite all of his efforts, he lived a life of conflict, desperately trying to hold on to what he didn't deserve, what he couldn't own, what he couldn't buy, what he couldn't kill his way toward. And then he died a foolish and condemned man. He lost it all because he rejected the true king of kings when he was born right under his own nose five miles away. What a terrible, what a needless end to a man who had such a tremendous opportunity to cooperate with the prophet's history and become a man of great legacy. What was his question? Where is Christ to be born? They told him. The prophet said, it's in Bethlehem, land of Judah. From there, from out of there, shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Not command them, not control them, not slay them, but who would shepherd his people. Herod, a man that had a despicable end. But in contrast, in such radical, stark contrast, there is the true King, Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, born in a stable, surrounded by animals that shared his birthplace. He humbly entered our world in Bethlehem. He grew up in a small village, not far from the seat of human power. He became a carpenter. Some say he was a stonemason. The two perhaps were mingled, living and working in obscurity for what, 30 years? Until finally, one day, he was recognized by John the prophet, who, who, who said, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is something Herod could could never do. For three years, 
This king would walk the land, would teach, would heal. He wouldn't raise an army. He wouldn't seek earthly glory. He would instead humble himself and accept death on the cross at the hands of selfish men like Herod, who saw him as nothing but a threat to their worldly influence and power. Yet through it all, Christ would be the true king in whom you and I find not only our redemption, but the means to gain victory over every earthly circumstance. And so Matthew presents us a, con a, a, a contrast between two kings, and with that a choice. One, person can build his own kingdom based on personal power and splendorous things that will be left, to, left behind at mortal death. Or two, you can put Jesus, the true king, on the throne of your heart. Find peace with God, knowing that you have been given eternal life by faith in him. See, that's why Jesus, other than, of course, being the son of God, is the true king of kings and lord of all lords and the prince of peace. He brings peace where there was no peace. So I believe it was Billy Graham such a long time ago who said that in, in every person born, there is a God-shaped hole in their heart. And it can only be filled with one person, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And when a person comes to Christ, and that, that God-shaped hole is filled with God himself. And the person then becomes whole, and the person then finds peace, which is why Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Amen? Amen. The wise men came with a heart of worship. They knew who the real king was. They submitted to his lordship and they served him with an accurate knowledge of his greatness. The greatest gift that could ever be given this Christmas is our worship of Jesus Christ in response to God's great love gift to us of his only begotten Son. So, come worship the King, having placed him on the throne of your hearts with a commitment to live for his glory for the rest of our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we know from a study of your word that worship is the expression of our commitment to honor you and to do it by an unceasing remembrance of your great glory and a willing, a willing submission to your lordship and a life of conscious spiritual service. Our prayer this morning, Father, as we have entered into your presence with this very special time, is, is to ask that you would cause your Holy Spirit to give us the joy of this Christmas season. Because it was, it's our joy, as it was in the, in the Magi's of old, to find joy when they found the King. God, I pray that you would cause each one of us to have found the King in a very special a consummate and intimate way. This I pray in Jesus' name.